Welcome to the Spark Weekly. On today's program, we speak with Joel Burkett, a retired environmental lawyer, about his new novel, Reap the Wind, a story with a climate change-induced storm as a main character. Also on today's show, we focus on Access 411, which is a web-based school management platform that aids with student transportation, after-school programs, student meals, and identification. Even though climate change may be a fact of life today, and especially moving forward, there aren't many books or stories that make a changing climate part of the fictionalized story. Retired environmental lawyer and now novelist Joel Burkett has done just that, weaving in a love story, self-reflection, ambition, and a few twists into a new book, Reap the Wind. Joel Burkett joins us on The Spark today. Welcome to the program. Scott, it's a pleasure being here, and let me thank you for having me on, and also uh, congratulate you on your upcoming retirement. Got a few months to go, so, (laughs) well, thank you very much. So, what inspired you to write Reap the Wind? I've uh, been involved in environmental issues for a long, long time, and my first uh, three novels uh, were written, uh, my first one was called Drink the Beast, <laughs> I'm sorry, Drink to Every Beast, and that is a novel about dumping hazardous waste in the uh, Susquehanna River. My second novel, Amid Rage, is about a um, coal mine permit uh, battle, and my third novel, Strange Fire, is about fracking. So it, when it came time for me to write a new novel, it was just natural that I would write a novel about climate change. Plus, climate change really is the existential issue Uh, of our time. And I really felt that I wanted to do what I'd done in my previous novels, which was to educate people gently, the way I like to do that, about climate change through fiction. And that was something that I I felt I could do with this new novel. Why don't you think there are a lot of stories out there, or, or kind of like any stories out there, novels, fiction, about uh, climate change or having climate change in, in the background? There is a genre of fiction called cli-fi. Really? Okay, that's the first I'm hearing that. Okay. Cli-fi is uh, a takeoff on sci-fi. So many of those novels that are written in the cli-fi genre really are science fiction type novels. And so unless you're an aficionado of science fiction or someone who follows cli-fi, not too many of the climate-based novels have really... uh, made it over to more traditional uh, reading lists. So uh, there are novels out there, but uh, unfortunately, they're they're just not uh, all that popular, I suppose, or they're not popular outside of a narrow group of readers. So I wanted to write something that would be um, read by a larger and wider group of people. Now, Clive Fi, most of uh, the books or the stories in this genre, are they horror stories or catastrophic stories, the end of the world kind of stories? Many of these stories talk about a time in the future when uh, the climate has just gone completely awry. And uh, so they're dealing with a time 50 or 100 or 200 years from now when uh, the people who are still around are dealing with awful climate issues. And so a lot of those stories, like I said, they're, they're sort of science fiction type genre. They're excellent books. Some of them are really, really excellent, excellent stories. But uh, many of those really are just uh, more science fiction-y than they are today kind of stories. Well, that's what makes your book 
unique in that, as I said, there's a love story there with climate change in the background. And we'll talk about it. So, you know, I mentioned to you before we get on the air, when we talk about uh, novels, fiction, uh, don't want to go too far because we don't want to give away the end of the, of the book, but describe uh, what's going on, the plot of uh, Reap the Wind. So Reap the Wind is um, the perfect storm meets the firm. So we all remember both the book and the movie, uh, The Perfect Storm, about the most horrific uh, storm ever to hit the Northeast. Uh, it happened about 20 years ago. And The Firm, of course, is John Grisham's great novel about a, uh, a law firm uh, that is a very, very dangerous place to work. And uh, my story is kind of uh, what would happen if those two stories came together. So uh, the basic premise of my story is that a young lawyer who is named Josh Goldberg is sitting in his firm's um, uh, seminar that they're putting on down in Houston, Texas, bored out of his mind. He, he just wants to go visit with his girlfriend who's up in a room. And uh, he is outside is a raging hurricane. And uh, unfortunately, what happens is she is eight months pregnant and decides ultimately that she's going to head back to Philadelphia, which is where they're from. He has to stay because he's on the program for the next morning. So she gets on an airplane and starts flying off to Philadelphia only to be diverted to Cincinnati and then ultimately to end up in the hospital. So I can tell you that much without giving too much away uh, of the story. The, the, the important thing is, and this is really what the story is all about, is he decides that he's got to be with his girlfriend, Keisha Jones. He's got to be with her. Uh, because uh, she may be having their baby. She's over eight months pregnant. She may be having their baby, and he wants to be there. But nobody is flying. Nobody. There are no trains running. There's no nothing. He ultimately is able to rent a Lincoln town car from his friend, the uh, limo driver. And he and his best friend, uh, Jeff Roberts, are planning on driving up to uh, Cincinnati together. And at the last moment, uh, his boss, Diane Scanlon, who is... A great antagonist. I tried mm. to make her as evil and she vicious is. as I could. I think everybody knows a person like <laughs> Diane, by the way. And so she decides to, uh, to, she finagles a ride and comes along with them. So it's it's kind of the, um, the buddy trip from hell. <laughs> and we'll talk about what that hell really looks like. But uh, tell me a little more about Josh. What's Josh like? Josh is a good guy. If you knew Josh, you'd be happy to be his friend. He's, he's a good guy. He's... He's got a very deep moral and ethical commitment and background, but he's working in the wrong place for him. He got involved. He went to, you know, high class schools, Haverford and Georgetown Law, ended up with over $300,000 worth of debt and got the opportunity to work in a big prestigious Philadelphia law firm. And so he did, but he had to put his ethics and morals aside, he feels, uh, to be able to do the kind of work that he does, which is environmental law. So he's a good guy, stuck in the wrong place, and kind of miserable about it, but really feels as though he has no choice but to be there. So he, he uh, is going through this transformation during the course of the novel from the beginning where he's more or less okay with what he's doing till the end uh, when he has grown quite a bit throughout the story. How much uh, Joel Burkott is there in uh, Josh Goldberg? You know, when you have a protagonist like that, uh, when I'm an environmental lawyer, I didn't go to Georgetown, but I'm an environmental lawyer, and um, 
you know, I've represented some clients that, um, you know, had their issues. And, you know, there are times you ask yourself, what am I doing? And uh, so, and, but not just me. I mean, I've talked to many, many lawyers over the years, uh, really in the dozens, if not hundreds, who had questions from time to time about what they were doing and about their clients. So, yes, it's, there's, there's certainly a little bit of me in there, and there's a little bit of a lot of other lawyers that I know who are in Josh. Mm. All right, so Keisha is uh, the fiancé who, as you mentioned, is eight months pregnant. Right, can I say that I actually d- didn't like Keisha that much? And I'll tell you why. Okay. Okay. Uh, and this is no, you know, when I say that, I mean, it's not that you, she wasn't well written. It was just that she's eight months pregnant. She's engaged to Josh, but she's questioning her commitment to Josh. And she ends up in a hospital where she's longing for uh, this boyfriend who just happens to be her OBGYN. So I don't know. I, I, when I looked at it, I was like, okay, you, you know, you, you're pregnant. You're getting married to this guy. Shouldn't you have a little more commitment? Well, keep in mind, she's been pregnant now for eight months, and neither one of them have gotten married. We make it, uh, or have even expressed the desire to get married, and I, I make it very clear from the beginning that both of them have issues oh, yeah. relating back to their parents. Josh's parents had a terrible, terrible divorce. You learn early on that they're not uh, not the greatest people. Uh, and Keisha just has her own commitment issues as well. And uh, so they both have commitment issues. Uh, Josh goes in one direction. Keisha goes in another direction. I threw the boyfriend in there. I figured uh, when uh, Anthony Souter showed up and, and, and she's shocked and he's shocked to see that in his hospital in Cincinnati, which is, you know, uh, 500 miles from uh, Philadelphia, is his former girlfriend, and, and she's shocked to see her former boyfriend is her doctor. So, you know, she's, I would say she's a confused young woman, and she's going through a transformation as a confused person. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Souter is not exactly a, a fan favorite either. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was actually a fun antagonist to write because he, he's not expect you're not expected to like him just like you're not expected to like Diane. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Diane. I said that uh, almost everyone has known a Diane. What's Diane's role in the, in the story? Well, Diane is the antagonist. I mean, she is the one that uh, we want to hate. Uh, there's a quote that I have uh, over my desk. It says, you're your story is only as strong as your antagonist. And that's true. And so in this case, I have um, uh, Diane, who is, you know, the worst boss on earth, just the most miserable person. She, you know, she, um, you know, she is uh, difficult to deal with. She can spin on a di- change on a dime, her positions on things, you know, but she's also very, very smart and very, very good at what she does. So the firm loves her. She, as I described early on in the story, you know, she's the firm's 2000 pound gorilla, even though she weighs only about 105 pounds. So she is kind of the fair haired child because she has a gigantic book of business you know, she attracts clients, and uh, and the firm loves her. The people who work for her, not so much. Yeah, and she's ambitious. She's very ambitious. She's very ambitious, and she's, uh, in fact, part of the reason that she jumps on the uh, in the in the Lincoln, is because she wants to get back because she's about to be interviewed by a Norwegian billionaire for a gigantic uh, piece of legal work. And so that becomes a part of the story as well. Is is she going to be able to hijack this 
this trip to, so she can get to Philadelphia on time for this meeting with this billionaire. She's very, very ambitious. Mm. So let's talk about this storm. How would you describe the storm? I think you described it well. It is the storm from hell. And uh, the very, very beginning of the book, the prologue, is an introduction to this almost character in the story, Hurricane Epsilon. And uh, what we learn from uh, being aboard a Weatherbird C-130W aircraft, a, an Air Force aircraft, is just how unusual and how big this storm really is and how dangerous it is. And then as we see uh, later on, uh, a chapter or two later, we see the weatherman, you know, standing out in the middle of the storm. Which they always do. Risking his life, you know, and getting impaled almost by a uh, stop sign, um, at which they, again, all, always seem to do these days. And we learn how big and how awful the storm is. But we also begin to learn that the storm is induced by climate change and that uh, one of the things that uh, the IPCC, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has said is that uh, over time, and we're seeing it now, is that storm and storm events are going to get bigger and worse and more profound. And that is what this storm is all about. And this storm uh, ha has it all. It's got a hurricane, of course, hurricane-force winds, terrible torrential downpours, uh, tornadoes that are spun off from it. As we go further north, it turns into a bomb cyclone, which is yet another meteoro meteorological event. And we end up with a gigantic amount of snow falling up north in uh, Ohio. So uh, it is a terrible storm. It becomes really a character in the story. And, um, you know, it, 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 sort of like Jack London's uh, To Build a Fire, which I had in mind at times when I was writing this story about having as an antagonist in the story, the storm itself. Mm. There's even a debate about climate change in the book. Starts in Houston, as you mentioned, uh, Josh is a presenter, and uh, there are energy companies that uh, are, are part of, uh, of this. Not as many show up because of the weather outside, and a lot of them want to get home. But uh, you, know, you, you even have a debate amongst uh, your Josh, who obviously is a believer and uh, knows what's going to happen with climate change, but even some climate change deniers. And I thought that was unique in that you have it coming out of characters' mouths rather than in a textbook form. Well, this is something that I really have tried to do in all of my books and certainly did it extensively in my previous book, uh, Strange Fire, about fracking. But, you know, there are two sides to every issue. And I'm well aware of the fact that there's another side to this issue. And so I have people who are likely to take positions such as energy company executives and uh, other lawyers who don't uh, go along with Josh's belief. And I have them presenting their positions, which are contrary to Josh's, and pre presenting them pretty strongly and stridently as well. And in fact, there's a scene early on in the story where one of the speakers at this uh, at this program that they're putting on gets into a fight, really almost mm -hmm. almost fisticuffs uh, with uh, one of the uh, one of the members of the audience, and have to be pulled away from each other. But throughout the story, there's this constant debate going on between Diane and Josh. Diane representing the the people who don't believe in climate change, Josh rep representing the believers. When you say there's two sides, though, I mean, uh, you know, one of the things we in the media uh, deal with often is that, you know, we know there are a lot of deniers out there, but uh, there are many more. Ninety seven percent has been the figure that's been, uh, you know, tossed around in, in the last uh, decade or so that of scientists who say that, you know, climate change is happening. So. Do you worry about giving equal weight 
to, you know, that debate? Uh, no, I didn't worry about that because my personal belief is that climate change is very, very real. It's here. We're seeing the effects of it now. We see it when we have droughts like we've been having. We see it when every year is a hotter year than the previous year. We see it when there are forest fires as we've had out west and throughout Europe and in Florida of all places. We see it all over the world, the evidence of uh, climate change. Climate change is very, very real. But there are still many, many people who persist and who take strong positions that climate change isn't a real thing. So I try to present both sides. There's the the side that I agree with you, and I've read read that 97% statistic as well. And also, literally 100% of the national... Uh, NAS, uh, National Academy of Sciences, around the world take the position that climate change is very real. And the IPCC, which is very, very prestigious and very, very highly regarded, uh, takes a very strong position that climate change is real. Mm -hmm. So there are certainly people out there, people listening in right now, perhaps, who are saying, well, this is not a real thing. And I, I try to present their views in this story as well, because I think if it was just... If it was just, uh, you know, somebody standing on top of a mountain proclaiming these things, it would not nearly be as interesting as two people discussing it or ultimately arguing about it. You know, I, I was wondering as I was reading the book, does a, a fictionalized story talking about climate change uh, and having climate change in the background of a story like this, if that has even more of an impact on people who may not pay attention to what's going on in the world? In fact, uh, that's the reason why I wrote the story this way, and um, it's it's very important for people to, to read about things like this. So if somebody wants to read this just as a story about three people in a car driving through a hurricane and a tornado and all the things that happened to them, then that's great. They're going to they're gonna learn something along the way, just like in my previous novel, Strange Fire. If somebody wanted to just read about a, a, a dispute that was going on in northern PA uh, that happened to do with fracking, then they're also going to learn about fracking in that story, too. So that's one of the things I try to do in my stories is I try to educate people along the way so that they and, and I do it in a gentle way as well. I don't I don't beat people over the head with this information, but I do want them to, to learn something. And so that's that's what I do. And in fact, um, I, you and I talked before the program and, and you noted that Michael Mann is one of the endorsers right. of my story. Uh, we had a nice conversation a couple of months ago and he felt very strongly that people can learn an awful lot through fiction, more so sometimes than nonfiction. Michael Mann, uh, one of the world's renowned climatologists, uh, was at Penn State now. He's at the University of Pennsylvania, has written several books uh, and also is involved in the IPCC. Um, how does an environmental an energy lawyer become a novelist? You know, I always loved to write. I started writing in college. I put it down when I became a lawyer. And uh, then I started writing again more seriously about 15 years ago. I was uh, stuck in a place called Lubeck, Maine, which is the easternmost city, northeasternmost city in the United States. I had no Internet access, no cell phone access, but I did have a laptop and I started writing. And after writing short stories for about a year, I uh, started writing a novel. Lubeck, Maine. Is that any... Uh is that close to Holton, Maine, by any chance? I don't know. Okay. Lubeck is, is way up there, though. Okay, well, Holton is right on the border with Canada, and I just went. I'd been to Holton before. Uh, so your other books uh, feature environmental lawyers and timely issues. Is it a case of writing about what you know? 
To a certain extent. Yeah, to a certain extent it is. I mean, I write about what I know. I certainly write about this subject, which very much interests me. Plus, I've been the editor of two major uh, publications, the law, uh, Pennsylvania uh, Environmental Law and Policy, and also the Law of Oil and Gas in Pennsylvania. I've, I've been the, uh, one of the co-editor of both of those books. Uh, probably the public, the audience, wouldn't find that as compelling reading as uh, well <laughs> as your novels. They're pretty, they're pretty dry, but they're the kind of things that lawyers and that policymakers uh, have on their desks and, and read. So we only have about thirty seconds left. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. So what's next for you? I mean, uh, it, it, it probably is a challenge to come up with a good story with these kind of backgrounds. But uh, w- what's next? Well, the very next thing is going to be on Tuesday night at the Midtown Scholar at 7 p.m. Yep. I will be uh, uh, having my launch party at Midtown Scholar in Harrisburg. So that's the very next thing that's happening. But right now I'm working on another book. I'm working on a number of projects. But one is called The Firebrand, which is about an environmental lawyer who's very frustrated with how long it's taking the state to do things. So he takes things into his own hands. And it sounds very realistic. (laughs) It could be. (laughs) Joel Burkett, thank you very much. The book is Reap the Wind. Scott, thank you very much, and good luck in your retirement many months from now. Thank you. Coming up on the second half of the Spark Weekly, we focus on Access 411. It's a web-based school management platform that aids with student transportation, after-school programs, student meals, and identification. You're listening to the Spark Weekly. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to the Spark Weekly. Access 411 is headquartered in York County and are the makers of the Comprehensive Attendance Administration and Security System, or also known as CAS. And CAS systems empower schools and districts with the tools needed to establish a secure and conducive learning environment. And today I have the opportunity to speak with its president, Rachel Morrison, about this organization and how it has grown over the last 20 years. Welcome to The Spark. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, and thank you for coming. So first question here, what is Access 411? Sure. Access 411, we're a school safety company. We've been in business for about 25, 26 years. Um, We are primarily focused on school safety. Um, We've been in about 1,500 schools, um, primarily on the East Coast, working with um, New York City Public Schools, Baltimore City, D.C., Pittsburgh, um, you know, a lot of big ones. Um, And we're a very mission-driven organization. We are Mm. all about providing schools, district leaders with the tools they need to just really make sure that students have peace of mind coming to school every day. And that's just, you know, what we continue to, you know, make a part of our mission mm-hmm. for you know the past 25 years and the next 25 years and um and the story behind uh it its inception um can you tell us how how it came to be to what we know it as today yeah sure thing so we let's say um 25 30 years ago um bill morrison who is our founder and um chairman former ceo um, he used to work in Baltimore City Schools, and mm. his something that he struggled with in schools every day was knowing which students are supposed to be in his building. Mm. So 
That's um, so. What they would do is um, to combat that was um, give students a Polaroid picture, and the students would wear a Polaroid picture to school every day. Oh, this wow. is to verify they're supposed to be in that building. Mm-hmm. Um, they're enrolled at the school, um, especially working in city schools. You might have like two or three schools within a city block, mm-hmm. uh, a couple city blocks. So, um, and then also experiencing a lot of gang violence, um, mm-hmm. you know, in the neighborhood in the communities. So. What he did, and he likes to explain it this way, is um, he met a couple of techie guys who <laughs> know a lot more than he does about technology. And um, basically, that's how CAS was created. Mm. So the students would get, were given an ID card. And what we do is working with a school district's student information systems called SIS. We use that to verify where the student is enrolled, if they are on any type of active suspension or um, withdrawn or transferred to another school. And then the students would use that car to get in the building every day. Mm. And, you know, it's just been an insane journey (laughs) since then. Um, You know, this started when I was younger. Mm -hmm. So I definitely watched, um, you know, my dad. And we're a family business. So I was. I, 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 <laughs> that was actually going to be my next question uh, yeah. because you said Bill Morrison. So I was like, yeah. okay, hold Same on. Last name. <laughs> is 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 there some kind of uh, relation here? So then, yeah. this is a family business. Then, yeah. oh, yep. oh, okay. So yeah. then, um, seeing seeing your dad um, start this in 1996. Mm-hmm. Um, how 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 have you taken it into the next uh, next phase here in two? Um, 2024. Yeah. So what I'm really, I guess we as an organization are trying to do is really take advantage of a lot of the technological advancements that are going on with um, AI, mm. data analytics, um, hardware and software, all that good stuff, um, and using that to really just try to take a more pro, a proactive approach to school safety. Um it's really important that with the everything that we are doing, that we are providing the tools that school leaders, administrators, district leaders need to really support their school safety operations. Mm-hmm. And um, we're very mission driven. It is all about keeping schools safe. So we focus primarily on K through 12 schools mm-hmm. um, and really a huge part of what we do is building that relationship with our district leaders because we want to do everything we can to support school safety, their Mm -hmm. operations, their objectives on a day-to-day basis. So what's great about our system and even our mission is that it's all focused on what we can do to make that easier for you, Mm. more accessible, um, and also really adaptable. So we want to make sure that whether you're a single charter school with 200 students or you're, you know, the largest city in New York City public schools, which is oh, like 6,000 students. Wow. Yeah. You know, we it, you can use it in any type of scenario, and we're willing to work with our schools to accomplish that. Mm. Okay. So um, so you mentioned um, CAS. Now, that's the Comprehensive Attendance Administration and Security System. Can can you tell us uh, what goes into that name? Because that's a, that's a big name. <laughs> you know what's funny is I'm really glad that like I had to write this down because even after working with a company for about 13, 14 years now, it's a tongue twister for me. I, <laughs> I always mix up the attendance and administration. So, um, yeah. So, CAS... Um, we're basically what happens with CAS is students enter the building, they scan their ID card, 
um, all of that information collects with our hosting environment, mm-hmm. and um, it's checking to make sure the student's there, um, pulls up all of their information right at the front at the front door. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, it's great because, one, it's not just verifying that the student is supposed to be there, but what's great about it, too, is the administrators and the team at the school are able to connect with the students. So it's not mm. always like this negative connotation of like, who are you? Are you supposed to be here? No, it's also um, being able to say hi, you know, put a, a name to the face of a student coming into the building. Like, mm. hi, welcome. It's great to see you. That's some of the like really empowering feedback that I've heard from a lot of our um, end users or, you know, uh, people in the schools is that, you know, some kids... They're, that's their first like inter- positive interaction of the day. Mm. Um, we do also do things like happy birthday alerts. And so being able oh, wow. to celebrate that. Some of the kids get pretty embarrassed by that. But <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. Some people love it. I went to a school <laughs> once and um, there was a girl who it was her birthday and it scanned in and played a little song for her. And she was like dancing with all her <laughs> friends. She had a tiara on. I was, oh, my then, gosh. Like, you know, a couple, it was another student's birthday the same day. And he was mm. like, oh my gosh, do not even, <laughs> he was like ran down the hall. <laughs> so, um, uh, so Access 411, um, Cass, you all deal with uh, web-based school management platforms um, <laughs> that, that aids with student transportation. Now, how do you aid with student transportation? So what we do is there are kind of two parts to, uh, to how we um, provide assistance with transportation services. Mm-hmm. So the first part is, um, I'll use Baltimore City for an example. So they have um, public transportation services with the MTA. So students can take um, you know, multiple methods of getting to and from school. Mm-hmm. So we tie their ID card to being able to scan on and off the bus. Okay. And if you don't have your card um, or if you don't qualify for those services, then, you know, um, then obviously it's you're not able to get on the bus. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so we work with the um, Department of Transportation to be able to pro- provide those services to students. Mm-hmm. And then the second part is we've created our own transportation platform. So what we oh. do is work with school districts, yellow buses, mm-hmm. to allow students to check on and off the bus. And the really in- crucial part of that is ensuring, one, that students are getting off at the right stop, Mm -hmm. um, and then also just um, making sure that parents are notified when their students are getting on and off the bus. Mm -hmm. So we do have families where parents are at work when students are getting home Mm -hmm. or before they get on the bus. So making sure they get that notification to say that, hey, my student got off the bus at the right time at the right spot. Um, huge peace of mind. I can imagine. Oh my um, gosh! I'm not quite a parent yet, but I can imagine. <laughs> like, um, you know, we've had, <clears throat> excuse me, some instances where um, a student was sleeping on the bus, mm-hmm. and then the parent never received a notification that the student got off the oh, bus. Oh man! So contacted the the school, the district, everyone. What's going on? Mm-hmm. And you know, they found the student sleeping in the back of the bus. So wow. you know, that in and of itself is like pays for itself type yeah. of thing. Um, and then what we're doing right now, which is really cool, and I mentioned before how we are really focused on just K through 12. We're actually looking to potentially expand that opportunity. Um, we are working with um, Baltimore City, the city, mm-hmm. to potentially implement a municipal card. 
Um, So essentially every citizen has a chance to get an ID card. And it's really um, like a big part of it is uh, helping uh, unhoused populations Mm -hmm. get an ID card. um, And that also is getting having access to services within the community. So, um, you know, that was a huge initiative that uh, Mayor Brandon Scott's been working on. Mm. We are um, providing, you know, whatever information they're looking for. And hopefully that's an opportunity for us to kind of expand a little bit outside of K-12. But it's certainly we're staying true to the you know <laughs> school safety K through 12 we're just exploring another an additional avenue yeah so um um what what have you all been doing in in York now um so i mean we're just headquartered in York um our family is from uh, Baltimore initially and mm-hmm. we moved up here um when i was like a little, little <laughs> <laughs> so um you know what we just continue to do is um keep working within um uh, any type of school district mm-hmm. that's interested to um, help address their school safety needs. And, um, you know, we have offices in um, in Baltimore. We have an office in South Carolina, or mm. sorry, North Carolina. Mm. And, um, and we're just looking to keep pushing our... Um, expanding our footprint all right take over the country (laughs) (laughs) rachel how does access 411 prioritize data privacy and security in its solutions sure so we host everything um internal to our headquarters Mm. um one of the major components when we are working with school districts and um um is ensuring that we are following all of the um laws and um, privacy policies that mm. are specific to protecting student uh, children data. So, for example, there is a, f- a COPA, which is, I'm going to read that really quick, um, which is the Children's Online Privacy Protection Rule. Mm-hmm. And um, it's essentially, we're not sharing data, we're not... Um, um, we're making sure that our systems and our infrastructure support keeping everybody's data internal and it's mm-hmm. only shared with the district um where there's also FERPA there's a couple there's a bunch of um uh legislations that really support keeping student data safe and that's something that we hold very very high standards with um mm-hmm. and a lot of the school districts are um great as well with ensuring that they are vetting every single vendor person mm-hmm. that comes into their school districts so um, you know, we are frequently going through cybersecurity training, which is such a huge thing in tech right now. I believe it. It is. It's incredible. Um, you know, cybersecurity policies, data sharing or data protection policies. Mm-hmm. Um, and we go through daily. I mean, shout out to our IT department for just like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for dealing with that. Um, and it's just a lot of words that I don't understand, but I do sure as, uh, I was about to swear, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> sure as, I will sure say that we keep all of that stuff under lock and key mm-hmm. 24-7. It's, that's just the, the nature of technology today. Oh, uh, well, yeah, yeah. Um, has to be because, I mean, there's, there's so much um, uh, delicate information mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some key features of the CAST system that set it apart? So in terms of the functionality and features that we provide, 
we not only have doorway entry management, so verifying students coming into the building, but what we do is we kind of piggyback off of the SIS student information system um, to look at student schedules. And, you know, a lot of it is just making sure that students are where they're supposed to be and Mm. really maximizing that classroom time. So... Um, we're checking students going in and out of the cafeteria, mm-hmm. the gym, all of those like major gadger- gathering areas where uh, it's kind of easier to skip class. Um, <laughs> I was a good kid in school, so um, you know I was always where I was supposed to be. But um, you know, making sure that when you go to lunch, you have an act- active lunch period. If you're mm-hmm. going off campus, um, that's something that we're seeing a lot recently. Is um, you know students going off campus for lunch? Are they mm-hmm. coming back to school? Um, and uh, one something that's really what makes us successful is that we have so like get so much feedback from our our um, school leaders, district leaders about you know ways that we can continue to improve our system, and mm-hmm. that is what just to- completely drives what we do. Mm. So if you know there was this crazy like TikTok challenge like last a couple years ago where it was like students. We're trying to figure out the craziest things to steal out of the schools. So, <laughs> and um, between that and vaping, we have been getting uh, we ha- we received so much feedback about you know how can we restrict or not even but just keep an eye on students in the bathrooms mm. and um, making sure that they're in class. So we have you know created a, f- a feature for that with. Yeah. Not just the bathrooms, but even just hallway management in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of another thing, too. One, like chronic absenteeism has been such a huge um, topic, yeah. especially post-pandemic, with trying to get kids back in school, back in the classroom. So um, we do also have um, a lot of attendance um, reporting, attendance functionality, um, and that's kind of like a overlap it's like a, I always call it a side quest where <laughs> there's like, um, you know, we're focused primarily on school safety, but then we also get into supporting attendance initiatives, um, you know, tart, chronic tardiness, chronic absenteeism, um, and then also communications as well. So mm. um, getting really getting parents and guardians involved in students' attendance. And um, uh, so we have like a notification platform where parents can receive notifications when their students get to school on time or mm. if they're tardy or if they haven't shown up to school. Um, we do also we, transportation services, as we talked about a little yes. bit earlier. And then um, we also do try to tie a lot of resources into um, connecting with community resources. So mm. if schools, you know, we have some schools who will utilize the student ID card to access the public library, wow. um, parks and recreations, and um, using it even for their ID cards for, or, I'm sorry, using it for lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just, you know, you need to have your card to check into school. It's also tying importance to that card and being able to utilize it. It's almost like, um, you know, I, I think you went to Shippensburg, right? Yep, yep. I, I went to Westchester. So, oh, all right. Um, yeah, so we usually generally have that, like, one card where you could use it for Every, getting into yeah. your dorm, getting into food services. Um, so having – tying that importance to a student ID card. And we've seen success not just in high schools but mm-hmm. middle schools and even elementary schools. You know, this it's so adorable seeing the kids with their, like, oversized lanyards with a little <laughs> ID card. But we find that they love that responsibility. It makes them feel – you know, 
like an adult. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I I will say this. Um, my my Shippensburg ID card. Um, when I when I would come home, uh, um, some some of the bars uh, would would give ten percent off. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I I kept that card mm-hmm. um, uh, even after I graduated. Oh, two yeah. years oh, two yeah. years after I graduated, <laughs> I was still using that card. Um, uh, but um, uh, you you mentioned um, going to back up here because you mentioned side quests real quick. Mm-hmm. Are you a gamer? I used to be. Uh, I think I was like. Like I, oh my gosh, uh, Call of Duty! I was obsessed with. Really? Yeah, I loved Nazi zombies. Oh wow! <laughs> I did but, not. I did not yeah, expect that. I, it's I, it's it's gotten away from me, but mm-hmm. I used to be really into it. Yeah. Um, but um, not so much. Now I'm like I play Sudoku. I play like uh, New York Times has the crossword puzzles. Oh okay. And okay. All well. That stuff. Well, it sounds like you grew up. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little. Bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> that is that is all right. We have uh, we have about um, a, a minute here left, and, mm-hmm. and I want to uh, thank you for for uh, joining us today. Now, um, you you mentioned. Um, uh, this uh, program, Access 411, we mentioned uh, the CAS system as well. So what school districts are you currently in and are there plans for expansion? A hundred percent always planning to expand. Um, right now we are in, I think I mentioned New York City Public mm-hmm. Schools. Um, we actually have a really big expansion in progress in the Midwest, particularly in really? the Chicago area. Wow. Um, my it's incredible watching Bill, my dad, work. Mm-hmm. He just, um, he has such a great network of people around him. And people really love his story, mm-hmm. how this company started. Um, being a former educator, it's, I think that's what sets us apart from our competitors mm. is that it is all about, they love hearing it from someone who experienced it with yeah. them. And continuing that mission and that legacy. I think that's why we will continue to see, I mean, obviously knock on wood, but we will continue to see success over the next 25 years because Mm. we're going to stay true to that. And um, we are always going to build those district partnerships, um, uh, relationships with anyone who's in ed tech, who's in school safety, school administration. Mm. We are always going to utilize that and, you know, continue to build that, um, that footprint and, um, you know, it, like I said, we're building and expanding in the South. We worked with uh, Guilford County Schools. Um, we worked with, uh, we actually just uh, partnered with Richland One in South Carolina. Mm. Um, we also have a really wonderful relationship with the Lansing Public Schools, who is kind of pioneered with us the our transportation solu- solutions with the Yellow Bus. And um, I just really. Um, Superintendent uh, Ben Schuldner, he's has such a incredible um, just uh, idea and concept of how mm-hmm. he really wants to build about change in his school district. So shout out to you, Ben. Um, <laughs> and then also just want to shout out to everyone at the office. They're all watching me right now. <laughs> and shout out to family, friends. Love you guys. Oh, yeah. No pressure at all. At all. <laughs> Rachel, I want to thank you uh, for coming up on The Spark and, and giving us all this uh, great information on Access 411 and, and CAS. I, I know that your father has to be proud. Yeah. I know 
know that he's listening like that's my girl you know and, and I know folks at home are just loving it as yeah. well and on behalf of Scott Lamar and myself we want to thank you for tuning in to another week of the Spark Weekly and if you have not done so yet please make sure to like and subscribe to our Facebook page you're listening to the Spark Weekly I'm Marquise Lupton thank you for making us a part of your day.